Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining. My name is uh, Tobias Tashtram, and uh, I run product management for Amazon Aurora. Hello, everyone. I'm Murali. I run the engineering for Aurora. Thanks for coming. Let's start. Okay, so we'll start with uh, just explaining what Aurora is. A quick recap of uh, database internals, nothing too deep, just to motivate why we um, you know, built Aurora. Cloud-native uh, database architecture and how we achieve durability at scale, some performance results, and some of the features and examples with global databases, fast database cloning, and the backtrack. Tobias. Oh, sure. So what is Amazon Aurora? Well, it's a database that gives you this, the speed and availability of commercial databases, but with the simplicity and cost effectiveness of open source database. It's compatible with MySQL as well as PostgreSQL, and it has an easy pay-as-you-go pricing model across both compute and storage. Okay, thank you. So uh, just to do a quick uh, recap, I chose uh, B plus trees, you know, because it's widely used in the database. So just to explain a few concepts. So the data within the B plus tree is uh, uh, organized in fixed set of pages. For example, in Aurora MySQL, we use 16 kilobytes of uh, pages. And that is kept in memory, and we refer to that as buffer pool. And uh, this is how the database maintains uh, the memory state. And periodically, it's serialized into data pages on uh, durable storage, and that is called as checkpoint. So essentially, each page in memory is persisted durably, so that when you have a cold restart or you want to take it from backup, there is data there. And when you think about how a database operates on these uh, data pages, the data is actually modified in place. So you have a page in memory, it is modified in place, and there is a standard protocol, which we refer to as do, redo, undo protocol. And the log records that are generated with before and after images are stored in a write-ahead log. So let's take an example. So you have a old state, this is a page, and then we do an operation, you get a new state, and the before and after images that are stored in log records in val. When you, when you want to redo this operation, you take the old state, you have the log record which contains the operation that was done, and you get the new state. There may be cases where you want to do undo, in which case you take the new state, you have the log record, you have the previous state there, and you do the undo operation, and you get the old state. So let's see how this is done for a crash recovery. Okay, so let's take an example here. So in the middle column here, you can follow pages that are written to disk, and on the right-hand side, you'll see the pages that are written to the transaction log. And we're starting here with one transaction, and time moves down. So the one transaction is run, and it has committed. Now we've made the change in the buffer pool in memory, as well as written it to the transaction log. And we'll get to that, why we need this undo-redo uh, protocol. Next, we have a transaction T2 that has started while the transaction was run. And as soon as that, the tr this transaction ran, 
it's updated in the buffer pool, and it's generated the log record and written that durably to storage. Now, while this transaction was running, the database did this checkpoint uh, procedure that Merle mentioned. So the checkpoint basically means anything that has been updated or changed in memory since the last time I used, um, uh, since the last time I did the checkpoint, I'll write to disk. And the thought here is that when you restart, you have to get the database to a consistent place, and then you can basically only need, you only need to worry about things that happened after the checkpoint. So in this case, the checkpoint happened, this blue page that we wrote in transaction one, it's been written durably to the data files of the database, uh, whereas transaction two wasn't because it wasn't committed yet. Okay, so that's only in the transaction log. Then we have transaction three that runs, it's written to the log and updated in the buffer pool. And then we have transaction four that started, but it never got to commit because we had a system failure, okay? So whatever it managed to do while it was running is in the transaction log, but there's no commit record, if you will, in the transaction log. So now the system restarts, and what does it need to do? Well, transaction one, it doesn't need to worry about because that was written to the data files when checkpoint occurred, so it can ignore that. Transaction two was started but was never committed, so it needs to redo transaction two based on what was written durably in the log so that everything is consistent. Transaction three, it needs to redo the whole thing because nothing was uh, updated uh, before the checkpoint. And transaction four, it needs to undo because transaction four it never committed. So this is where you can kind of see the redo undo protocol in action. So a recap on the IOs required to actually manage persistence. So again, we have the same type of columns with the durable storage for the data files as well as the transaction log. So when you write, there is gonna be one IO that's writing to the transaction log. If many things happen at the same time, sometimes these IOs can be combined across transactions. But one IO for that, even if it's only a few bytes, you need to run, write that, because otherwise you can't guarantee durability, you can't redo, right? Then you need to do a page protection write. So I call this suspenders and belt write. Because of the fact that we're writing a 16K block, you could manage only to write some of it when the crash happens. So we need to make sure that it actually is fully written. So you write it once into a scratch pad space, if you will, and then you write it again when the checkpoint happens. So now we have actually three IOs. It's kind of the minimal, if you will, uh, to write to a, a traditional relational database. And as you can see here, IOs probably matter quite a bit for performance, especially when it comes to writes to databases. Merle did this slide, so it says databases are all about I.O. There might be some other stuff that databases do also, but, but, yeah, but mostly about I.O. What about the UX on top of it? Yeah, there is, yeah, there is UX on top of the I.O., this query optimization processing, stuff like that. Right. Thank you. So let's uh, talk about, you know, the, the key motivation, as Tobias mentioned, is the database does a lot of I.O. Yeah. So this is what the traditional database architecture look like. You have a compute instance which processes the SQL statements, it does transactions, it does caching, uh, what we showed as buffer pool, and then there is logging which goes into the storage system, and there is attached storage, and because it does a lot of I.O., the best idea we had so far is increase the I.O. bandwidth or decrease the number of I.O.s. This is all we could do, right? In Aurora, we took a slightly different approach. So we, we, we look at log as the database. 
So I assume that there is a log stream from the beginning of the database time. So you have T0 to T now, you have all the log records. Any version of a database page can be constructed using this log stream. Right? So let's take an example. Okay? You have a blue page at T5, and we can create that using the log records that were created at T1 and T5. Are most pages blue or some? It could be red as well. Oh, red also. Yes, right. So you know, that we, we also refer this as uh, coalescing. Uh, essentially, bring all the log records for a particular page, put them together, create a new page image. That's what we call as coalescing, right? So the first problem, right? If we rely only on the log stream for page reads, it's not practical. It's, it's going to be too slow. Why is that slow? Because if you have the log stream from time zero, you know, assume that you have a database that is running for a year, right? So to, to do any page read, you need to go from time zero. So one year worth of logs needs to be replayed. So that's not practical, right? So the solution here is periodic checkpoints. This is what a traditional database also does. Right? It's like mini replays every once in a while. Once in a while. So then, uh, you know, one approach we could have taken is let the database do this. This is what the traditional database was doing. And as Tobias mentioned, that's where the IO inflation happens. For a small column update, you end up writing 32 kilobytes at a minimum, if, you, if 16 kilobytes is the page size, right? So the solution we came up with is why not offload that work to a distributed storage fleet, which does continuous checkpointing. So essentially, the Aurora uh, method is to just write log records to the distributed storage, and the distributed storage does the continuous checkpointing. So when you do a page read, when the database does the page read, the latest version of the page is already coalesced and ready for serving. Right? So how, do we, how did we achieve that? Right? So we, we, we looked at the overall stack. There is a compute, and there is a storage, and there is a clear difference between compute lifetime and the storage lifetime. Compute instances, they can fail, they can be replaced, they can be shut down to save cost, they can be scaled up, down, out, based on the loads, load needs, right? But in case of storage, we cannot lose the data. It has to be long-lived. So the, the thought process is the lifetime requirements itself gives us an idea of separating compute and storage. So the, by decoupling, we can also get the scalability, availability, and durability, and we'll go through that, and how Aurora achieves that. So in case of Aurora, we built this log structure distributed storage system, which is multi-tenant. That means that the storage offers the data from multiple databases on the same storage layer. It is multi-attached. That means that multiple database instances from the same database cluster can attach to the same distributed storage. And it is purpose-built for databases. Uh, by that, we mean that the storage intimately understands log records and the pages. And uh, in case of uh, uh, Aurora, the storage system understands MySQL page format, Postgres page format, all the data structures, and so forth. Right? And uh, we leveraged several services in AWS to build this. So we did not build uh, our metadata store. We use uh, DynamoDB for that. Um, we use Route 53 for our naming. We use uh, EC2 for our instances. We did not have our own custom hardware. We use 
uh, instances that have local attached SSDs on it, I2s and I3s. And we use Amazon S3 for storing our uh, uh, backups. So let's dive deep into how IO flows in a storage node. So, okay, so the, the red square on your left there is an example of a database instance, and then this green storage node, we've zoomed into one of the storage nodes. And if you've heard Aurora writes to six copies of every page for everything, it writes to six of those things. So six separate storage nodes, two in each availability zone. So we've zoomed into one of them, and then the other green box you see under the red one there is you know, other buddies of this one, so other friendly nodes, or peer storage nodes. So let's take a look at an actual I.O. that happens. And the first thing that's interesting, so here, we send log records over. The first thing that's a little bit magical with Aurora is when do you send the log records? So in a traditional database, when do you send it? You would think that you send it as soon as you, you kind of finished creating the log record. Well, that's not practical because, as we mentioned before, as soon as you generate the log record and if you write it, you use an I.O., and you can only do so many IOs per second depending on your storage subsystem. So you want to group them, like you want multiple log records to come together somewhere, and then you write them in batches. So you typically have some sort of log buffer that buffers up until you have enough writes or there's a enough delay in the system that it goes, okay, fine, I'll write this to the log now. And obviously, once you have a commit, it will have to wait until the, the durability, uh, until it has been written, until it says, okay, I've done with the, the commit. With Aurora, we don't do IOs to disk anymore. We do network IO. We send it from the database instance over to the storage node, and that's a lot cheaper. So we'll still do some buffering, but you can have a much smaller network buffer, if you will, until it gets sent over to the storage node, which means you can move faster. Okay? So we send it over to the storage node. Now, in fact, we send it then to all six storage nodes at the same time. So we've zoomed into one of them. Uh, so it comes into the storage node, into memory, into a buffer on the storage node, the first thing that storage node then that needs to do is it needs to write it to disk. So we know that we didn't lose this log record, okay? So it writes it to disk, we call it this hot log here, and then it can say, okay, I've got it back to the database instance. And the database instance then only needs to track what's going on with its six reads. And it, needs, it can actually continue moving forward. The only time it actually needs to wait is when it issues a commit. Then it needs to wait for at least four of these folks to have written all of, the, all of the log records, okay? So, and this is the only thing that's synchronous in the communication. So as soon as it's been written to the disk on the storage node, it continues, okay? So the next steps are all asynchronous, if you will. The database instance doesn't have to wait for them. So next step after this is creating these pages, so this optimization that Merle mentioned earlier so that we don't have to reconstruct all of the pages all of the time from the beginning of time. So, it does this with using this update log. And obviously, I can't create a page until I know that I have all the log records that have been generated up until a certain point in time, right? There can't be any holes in the chain because then the redo protocol doesn't work and I get the wrong page. So it will wait until it has enough of these pages there. Now, it will also do this gossiping. So what happens if, I don't, if I'm missing a log record? So I have five, but I'm missing four and I have one, two, three. Well, then I can go ask my buddies, my other peer nodes, hey, this log record four, do you have that? And in fact, the, the storage node speaks Spanish, so it's like, hola, que tal? Um, <laughs> it gets it. I'm, we're working on Swedish. It's way more complex. Um, so then it gets its log records. Once it has the full sequence, 
it coalesces and generates the page and writes it to disk. So now we have the pages, and this is kind of our internal checkpoint, if you will. And then, as time moves on, we ship those data pages over to S3, as well as the log records. So I can use S3 then for point-in-time recovery to any point in time. Uh, and then, obviously, we generate these pages all the time. So not having the pages a problem for performance because you have to redo everything. Having too many of the pages is obviously a waste. So once we know that the pages aren't needed anymore, we can go and garbage collect them. Okay? We can never garbage collect log records. Those we have to keep, right? because you may need them for a point-in-time recovery. And then we periodically also do a checksum validation to make sure that there wasn't a problem with a page. And if we find a problem with the page, it can go speak Spanish again to its friendly peers to get that page from them. So again, only the first two steps are actually synchronous, so something that the database instance waits for. The rest are asynchronous. And again, it sends it to it six of these storage nodes, so all of this happens in parallel in six different locations, or more, but it's for each page, if you will, it's six different locations. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Tobias. So we looked at a single storage node. So let's look at how we achieve scale. So at scale, there is going to be some failure in the fleet at any given point. There's going to be failing nodes, failing disks, failing switches, and so forth. So how do we uh, handle that? Right? So the strawman solution for this is do replication. So a typical um, idea is let's use three availability zones. Let's put one copy per availability zone. You know. Then do write and read quorum of two out of three. It's a fair idea. Let's see if it works for all the failure cases. What about the AZ failure? Right. So still there are two out of three copies because each AZ contained one copy. There are two more availability zones that are up. So you have two out of three copies. You can establish quorum. There's no data loss. Right. What about AZ plus one failure? What do, what do we mean by AZ plus one? Now losing a node in any given AZ is possible at any given point in time. So if you have an AZ down and a node is down as well in some other AZ, what would happen? Essentially, you lose two out of three copies. That means that you lose the quorum, you lose the data. So how does Aurora deal with that? So we replicate six ways. Tobias mentioned it briefly. So we have three availability zones that we use for any database cluster. We put two copies per availability zones, and we use write quorums of four out of six. So let's go through the same example. What happens if a AZ fails? We still have four out of six copies. There are two availability zones that are up still, each having two copies. So we have four out of six. We maintain availability. What happens if there is an AZ plus one failure? Right? We still have three copies. It's not writable, but there's no data loss. Why, why can't we write? Because we need four out of six. Why do we need that? The, the reason why we need four out of six is, uh, is because uh, when we look at uh, the, uh, there's, it's a long answer, okay? <laughs> yeah. So the, the first part is why do we need the two copies? We addressed it already, because there is always one node that is failing. 
So, and 4.6 works well to hide the tail latencies as well. So when you have this large fleet of uh, storage nodes, there's always this um, SSD that is bare leveled and so forth. You can hide uh, the, uh, the tail latencies if you wait only for 4.6. So in this particular case, we have lost three copies and uh, we can reconstruct the remaining uh, copy from uh, uh, the remaining peers. There's no data loss and we recover right availability. So the question uh, then is if you have six copies, okay, do you, do you have to, uh, how do we get the largest database size possible? We support 64 terabytes now. So you cannot obviously put 64 terabytes in a single SSD. So we use segmented storage. We partition the volume into N fixed segments. Could, could we support more than 64 terabytes? Yes. We, architecturally, it's possible, Ooh. and we are working on increasing the size as well. Right. So the, the, once you partition it to end fixed segments, it, each segment is replicated six space. So now the question is, how big should these segments be? Right. If it is too small, you're just going to have too many of these segments, so the failures are uh, more likely. If you have it too big, the repairs are gonna become long. So we, we experimented quite a bit, and then we settled with 10 GB as a size, and uh, we can uh, replicate uh, a 10 GB segment within a minute. Right. So how do we do repairs? So let's go through that. So we use quorum sets and epochs to do repair. There's an example I can walk you through. So Let's assume that there is a six-way replicated segment on machines A to F, and all nodes are healthy. And this A to F, this, this quorum, is available to the database node. So database ma manages all these metadata as well yeah, in terms of knowing that this production group has six copies, and the, this is where they are uh, located. So when the log records need to be sent to a particular page, it figures out which segment it belongs to, it knows all its peers, and the peers are given by this quorum. So it sends to A to F, and everything is good, it runs the four out of six quorum protocol. Right. So we, we do monitoring of all these storage nodes, and with pings, uh, with uh, instance health checks, and so forth, and we might uh, find that machine F is in uh, suspect state. You know, it, it may or may not be working in which case we create another quorum for the same replication group by adding a machine G. So now we created two quorum sets, one with the A to F, that is the previous one, and the future quorum set, which contains uh, F replaced with G. So in this particular state, there are seven nodes in that production group. And the database instance now writes to both of these quorum sets and waits for four out of six from both of them. So essentially, if F is up in, in terms of database view, it is actually writing to seven nodes instead of six. Okay. This is good because we can always abandon one of the quorums at any given point. We are not losing any data. Right. After some point, uh, the system can uh, determine that F is actually not healthy and it can be removed, in which case we can drop the first quorum. And we have cleanly uh, moved on to adding a new node into the replication set. So we're being kind of proactive to make sure that we don't have to rebuild a node when yeah. it's acute. Correct. So this Aurora is 
continuously self-healing. And this, this is a procedure that we use for heart failures if a machine is down or SSD is broken or there is you know, any network problem. All of that goes through the same process. It's a single approach we use. And this is also used for continuous heat management. So when you do placement of these segments across these thousands of uh, SSDs, you know, depending on the workload of the database, you might have some database which is heavily used, in which case you'll have, uh, because of the multi-tenancy, you might have impacts, in which case we move segments out to provide more IO bandwidth, more space, and so forth. So the, the, whether it is hard failure or soft failure or maintenance operation, everything goes through the same process here. Tobias, you want to talk about the performance? Oh, yes. So let's take a look at IO profile and just contrast a little bit what we've talked about, Aurora versus traditional MySQL. Most databases work roughly like this. So you have here MySQL with a replica, and all of these arrows that point in different directions here uh, have different colors that you can see at the bottom. So for example, you can see that the, the transaction log or the log records or log writes are the blue ones. The bin log um, used for replication traditionally are the red arrows. Then actual data replication is the, is the gray one. Yellow is this suspenders and belt writes, uh, or double writes, we call them here. That must be something wrong. Um, and then uh, at the uh, metadata files. So essentially you can see that we are writing from the replica, we're sending all of these IO over to the secondary, and then on both sides we're writing both to data files and um, uh, to data files in a primary storage unit, and then we're sending it also to a secondary storage unit if the storage unit fails. So there's quite a lot of IOs here. So in the IO profile here for a 30-minute uh, sysbench uh, run, there were 780,000 transactions, and you can see here average 7.4 IOs for each transaction. So the number of IOs would be 780,000 times 7.4. Now, if you look on the Aurora side, you see that the colors differ quite a bit. So the only thing that goes from the writable replica to the read replicas, as well as to the storage nodes, are log records. Um, so we send the log records, like we said before, to the six storage nodes so that they can run through this protocol that we saw. Uh, we need to send them also to the read replicas because the read replicas have their own buffer pools, and if something changes, we need to update the buffer pool. But all these, uh, these folks need to update the buffer pool is the log records. So you can see all, the only thing that's written is the log records. And then you can see here, if you look closely, on the right to Amazon S3, we have both the log records, the blue arrow, and then we also write the gray records or the data pages. And these are the checkpoints to be able to um, recover fast in terms of point-in-time recovery. And so here you can see the example of the same 30-minute suspense run on the same database instance size, if you will, where you have instead 27 million transactions and 0.95 IOs per transaction, which makes sense. Each transaction needs to do, on average, an I.O. for the log record. And you can imagine that this makes quite a bit of difference when it comes to performance, especially on the right side. So we say that Aurora MySQL is about five times faster than traditional MySQL database. Well, if you split this into writes and reads, on the left side you see the graph for writes, where the, the uh, blue bars are, are the throughput of Aurora, and the 
write bars or the throughput of traditional MySQL. You can see it's, it's actually way more than five times faster, which makes total sense because the other one is writing about seven to eight times more. So it would make sense for it to be roughly seven to eight times more work and seven to eight times more latency and seven to eight times less throughput. And then on the read side, you can see that the difference isn't as great. We're still quite a bit faster uh, because of the fact that we've optimized parts of MySQL and Aurora to uh, handle the read throughput. Right. So the uh, one, uh, one thing I'll add is, uh, you know, when the storage system scales and performs, the database also has to keep up with that. And what we had to do for Aurora is to also change uh, quite a bit of a surge, uh, invasive changes into the database engine. We produced a new lock manager. We changed the way we do uh, threading, uh, how we manage the work queues, and so forth, so that we can take advantage of the changes that we have made in the distributed storage. The storage is too good. Yes. I wonder in, what, in Merle, talk, worked, I wonder what Merle worked mostly on. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about the global databases. So yeah, for global databases, we built this thing called uh, physical replication. Essentially, we take the uh, log records and we ship it to a different region, and I'll explain it here. So in this particular case, uh, primary database instance is sending the log records to uh, storage nodes, which to achieve the four out of six quorum, and it is sending to its peers the read replicas within the database cluster, and it's also sending it to the replication server, which then takes it and sends it to a different region, to the replication agent there. And the replication agent now behaves as a writer. And it sends to the replica instances and also to the storage. So essentially, you know, uh, we are getting a pipeline of log records that are flowing between regions, and we are achieving the durability in both the regions, so two different Aurora DB clusters, and both of them are behaving as if the writers are writing locally. Do we send the log records in order over to the other side? Yes. And so, do you send them in serial, or? So we, we, we use multiple connections. We, you know, VAN's, uh, VAN communication is very different than LAN communication. Uh, we are making sure that uh, the log records are in sequence, but we are sending it in parallel, reassembling them, and so forth. So all the goodness that you expect from an enterprise database uh, we had to do. And uh, uh, as you see the, the small arrow, in case there is a uh, break in network communication, the storage is capturing all the log records so that if the database is down, for example, or you're restarting, or network is down, we are not able to send the log records uh, over immediately. We have it stored in the storage node, and the replication server can pull it from the storage and send it. So how does this uh, perform? So here, because the replication server is just behaving like yet another read replica within the database cluster, it's able to keep up. So we're able to, in this example, uh, the uh, workload is able to keep up with 150,000 writes per second without much performance impact. It's basically the replication server is just yet another replica within the DB cluster. 
low replica lag within less than a second. You can do the replication. And fast recovery, less than a minute to accept read-write workload on the region if there is a failure. So this, this part is same as um, existing Aurora logic. We didn't have to change anything here. So if you, if you restart Aurora database uh, cluster, the recovery happens in parallel because the storage helps in recovering it. So instead of the database pulling all the log records and doing redo and undo, we are able to distribute that work over the fleet of the storage node. So when, uh, when you have to fail over to a new region, we're able to recover quickly because Aurora recovers quickly regardless of global database or not. And it's a fully managed solution, so you don't have to manage like a replication server and a replication agent. That's just hidden from you. All you say is I want to replicate from this uh, region to this other region. That's right. Very good point. So let's look at how it performs. So on the left uh, graph, on the left scale is basically queries per second, and the right scale is the uh, lag. The right graph is a physical replication, left is a logical replication. In this particular case, we used MySQL bin log replication, the logical replication. And you can see that once you reach around 30,000 QPS, the lag shoots up. So it's not able to keep up. So this is, this is one of the things that we see in non-synthetic workloads as well. Right? The bin log protocol is very heavy, so it doesn't scale. So you see in uh, the global databases, so the queries, uh, QPS can go till 200,000. The lag continues to remain low, so it's below a second. And recently, we also uh, launched ability to add multiple uh, mirrors, uh, up to five mirrors. So pre uh, previously, you could add only one mirror. Now you can add multiple mirrors, and we also launched the ability to have, uh, promote any Aurora database cluster, Aurora MySQL cluster, into a global database. So if you have existing database, you can make it global database. Let's look at a quick uh, walkthrough. So here uh, we have the primary region, which is US best, and the primary instance is writing. It's continuously inserting data. And US East is, uh, we, we use it for uh, reads. Okay, so the data is flowing between these two regions continuously. And let's see uh, how the lag is. So essentially the, the insert is happening on the left. You can see the timestamp. And at the same time we are doing a read. And uh, the database level, this is not the uh, CloudWatch metric that the system shows. This is within the database you can see in your schema that the replica lag is around 110 milliseconds. So typically we, we see across many regions, the pass, it is less than a second. So it, it, this feature is quite useful if you have a distributed application where you want read scalability, you can get this, you can use it for disaster recovery because once you have the data flowing to a different region, you get the continuous um, uh, backup and restore as well. So you can take snapshots, you can recover and so forth. So even if you don't use global database to start uh, uh, creating a failover and so forth, you can use it for disaster recovery. And you can fan out your uh, other tasks, read tasks that you might have outside the region. Let's look at database cloning. Database. Yes. And I might add, on, it's, there is a big difference 
in Aurora in the fact that we can do all of these things in parallel. So if you remember that the, lots of those steps with the Spanish speaking went through, after the two, right, when we've written it durably, every, the database instance can continue, right? And you had this smaller network buffer, so it means we can send things faster. And then all of the system works like this. So each of the, each of the nodes can continuously see us sending these log, see, log records and keep coalescing and keep, keep looking for holes. And as soon as it doesn't have holes, it can create the pages. So because of the fact that the system works like this, you can do this at a massive scale, so in parallel. And that's really the biggest difference is there's low latency for the log records to be created and sent to storage from the database instance. And in the database instances, we can move in parallel. And this applies both to the local replication as well as the global replication. And that's why you can run this massive scale with low, uh, low replica lag. So database cloning, what's that? Well, it's roughly what, it's, what it sounds like. I can have a, you know, a database that's readable and writable, and I can say, please give me a clone of this database right now. It's pretty fast. You have a clone available, and that's both readable and writable. So there's two benefits here. One is that it's fast to create this clone, and the other benefit is that the clone now shares storage with the primary, as long as that storage hasn't diverged. So if I have, let's say, a 100 gigabyte or you know, 64 terabyte database and I clone it, I'll now, I now have the clone, which has access to all of this information, but it just points to the same pages in storage that the master did, or the, the original database, if you will, that you cloned. And because of this also, the only storage that you pay for on the clone side is whatever diverged. So obviously now if you start writing on the clone, well, we need to keep track of what changed. And those pages you'll pay for on the storage side. But as long as they're not diverging, you only pay for uh, what you actually used. You created the 64 terabytes, and then you're paying for 64 terabytes, even though you have two fully readable, writable instances leveraging this with minimal perform or no performance impact. And you know, you can use this for many things. It might be that you want to, you know, do something uh, risky, right? You do want to practice first and just create a clone, run through it, see what happens. Uh, you may want to run just tests, create a clone, or you may want to clone because you have a template database that you created that has a bunch of gigabytes or terabytes and you want to use that as the basis for a new database, well, that works fine. You have the template database, you create a clone, and you run from the clone. So all of these are kind of valid use cases here. And uh, you can do it across account as well. So, oh, across accounts as well. Yeah, so if you have a production account and you have a test account, uh, you don't want to use the production account for your testing. So you can cross account clone. But then you have to pay on both sides. No, the, the storage still references. Oh, so. you still only pay one. That's right. very good. So <clears throat> let's see how this looks, uh, how this works in the real world here. So we have a source database. It has, you can see here, the blue pages, one through four. And then we just created the clone. It has the same pages because nothing changed. So on the storage side, if you see, if you will here, we have, apparently have, here have two protection groups. And again, a protection group is a set of six uh, storage nodes, right? There are six segments right into six different storage nodes. Uh, and apparently one, page one and three is on the first protection group and page two and four are on the second protection group. And then let's see what happens when it diverges. So now we make some changes on the source database. So now apparently we poke that page two here. So now it's 
another version of that page, if you will, and we apparently also created page five. So you can see page one and five are now uh, available, as well as page two, and the, the other versions are also available. So now when we look at the clone database, it can also diverge, and again here, you only pay them for the union of the two, right? So the source plus whatever diversion you did on the source and the, the secondary. So let's just walk through an example here. So here we have a database. Uh, we ran uh, a bunch of transactions to load it. So we have about 40 million rows. I still don't know why it's about 40 million. So there's four rows missing from 40 million here. Yeah. Next time we should get this to, to right. 40 million even, that'd be great. Um, and it's about, it used about 25 gigabytes of space here. So you can see the Cloud, uh, CloudWatch metric here went up to 25 gigabytes. So I go and I click in the, in the console, I click the database and say I would like to create a clone. So now I get a clone and you can see the top here, we're querying the clone to see that it has almost 40 million rows. Now, when we worked on this, we made sure that this was small enough so you couldn't see, but we're being honest here, it's not exactly 40 million. It's 39 million, 96. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I look at the CloudWatch metrics for the clone, we can see that the only space that's being used on the clone is about 100 megabytes, okay? So then, let's go and update about 10 million rows again. Not exactly 10 million, <laughs> almost 10 million. <laughs> Um, I think it was slightly above this time, so that compensates kind of for the four rows that were missing before. Uh, and now you can see, because of the fact that we diverged in the replica, uh, then the replica now needs to store a little bit more information, so now it's 1.2 gigabytes instead of 100 megabytes. So Merli, tell us a bit about Backtrack. Right, so let me also add a couple of things about the clone. So, um, uh, when we create the clones, uh, we reference the uh, segments of uh, the parent uh, database, and then we create a new segment, and we make it resident on the same SSD. So when you look at the database cluster, you can create unlimited amount of clones. So you take a database, you can create a clone after a clone after a clone, and so forth. There is no limits on the number of clones you do. But uh, uh, technically, on the back end, we cannot place all those segments on the same SSD and we transparently handle it. So we look at the utilization of the number of segments, the space utilization and so forth, and we diverge and move it to different SSDs so that we can spread the load. So from the DB cluster perspective, we can create unlimited clones and the storage system handles it, uh, regardless of the number of clones you create. Let's look at uh, database backtrack. So backtrack is a feature that uh, we shipped uh, that is a heavily storage dependent feature where you can quickly bring the database to a particular point in time without having to restore from backups. So this happens uh, when you, for example, unintentionally uh, dropped uh, a table, deleted a bunch of rows and so forth in your production database. The previous approach typically people would use is to do point-in-time recovery. In this particular case, uh, with Backtrack, you can rewind the database. And you can do it multiple times. And every time you rewind, you, that database is also writable. So you can continue writing. 
For example, in this particular case, the database moved till time T1, and when it reached T2, you decide that it is not the state that you really want. So you want to rewind to T1. So what has happened here is log records have been generated, and the page versions have been generated, and so forth, till T2. So the storage knows the log record sequence numbers and the versions that have been created and so forth. But then when the customer asks, go rewind it back to T1, we make the log records and the page versions between T1 and T2 invisible. So we essentially create a tree of LSN space. Okay. And then we reach T2, the time moves forward, you reach time three, T3, and when you reach T4, the customer asks to rewind the database again to T3. The same thing happens. So essentially we uh, hide the log records. Essentially you can see a tree of log records that have been formed. And you can always jump back into this invisible zone, in which case we are essentially jumping into a, a branch of the LSN tree. And then we can show the database as of that point. And all of these operation happens in parallel. Uh, so if you have a 64 terabyte database, there's thousands of segments that are backtracked in parallel, and the database is brought into a consistent state, and you can start writing. How far back can I backtrack? Right, good question. So the customer has an option to set the time uh, interval. So you can configure backtrack uh, time uh, interval, and uh, today we support till uh, 72 hours of backtrack, and you can backtrack to within that period of time. Right. So when, when would I use this? So you can use it on a disaster case, or there are cases where, you know, if you want to iterate on a schema change. So you, you want to make a massive change to your database. So uh, in your production, you don't want to do it immediately. So the, the typical approach is you take a clone of your production database, and then you make a schema change, see whether it works well for you. If you don't like it, you just go back, to, uh, back in time make another change and so forth. The backtrack is very quick. It happens less than 10 seconds, regardless of the size of the database. So you should be able to go back and forth. So I can clone and then I go backtracking back and forth. You can do back and forth. Let's do an example here. So in this particular case, uh, there is a table um, with that, uh, approximately, approximately 10,000 <laughs> rows. But in this particular case, it's exactly 10,000 rows. Ooh. Okay. And we are For, but just because you're talking, <laughs> I promised you if it was me, there's like 10,002. 10, <laughs> okay. So uh, we are looking at the uh, uh, descending five top five uh, rows and the timestamp uh, at the 705. Okay. This is the current state. And we modified uh, the schema, we added a new column, C1. Uh, we're not showing that in the output. Uh, we show only the C, but we added the, the statement is right there. We added two rows, um, you know, 100,001 and 100,002 is the value for the uh, column. It would have been too easy if we showed the column there. Right. Also. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> you know, this, this is a geeky demo. Right? <laughs> yeah. So then you realize that this is not a state that you want to be. Okay. So what do we do? So we go to the console. There's also APIs for this. Uh, um, for simplicity, I'm showing the console here. You can select the database cluster, backtrack, put in the time, uh, 706, 
and in a few seconds you get back the good old state. So I can backtrack schema changes, drop tables, create inserts. Yeah, you can do. As long as the backtrack window is configured correctly, you can go back and forth. Is and there a backtrack on, on by default or something, or do I have to turn it on? Today you have to turn it on. Um, and you have to configure the hours that you want. And the, the same technology uh, you see in terms of, we talked about uh, how we store the log records, how we store the different page versions and so forth. That is exactly the same technology that we are using uh, for accomplishing backtrack. It's just that we're not garbage collecting uh, the log records and the page versions. We retain them as long as the backtrack window uh, is available. Ah, so backtrack impacts your bill a little bit. Correct. So the, based on your backtrack window, you would be charged for the storage that is incurred for uh, giving that functionality. So backtrack, uh, internally, uh, we talked about uh, copy and write clone. We use a, use a technology called copy and write, where page uh, versions are maintained. When, uh, when a new version is uh, uh, being produced, we reference count, uh, decrement the previous uh, reference count, create a new version, and so forth. And that is the same technology that we are using for backtrack as well. So internally, if a page doesn't change um, on the storage node, it's just you know multiple copies are not retained across the LSN tree, if you will. References. We wrote a couple of papers, Sigma papers. I uh, highly recommend uh, you guys um, looking into it, uh, and uh, many of this material is explained in greater depth there. You know how we do persistence, how we do uh, commits, distributed recovery, and so forth. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you.